This is Kai Foser and you're listening to the Full and Focus podcast. Hello, welcome to the Full and Focus podcast. My name's Matt Boisclair. The tough games are coming thick and fast as we head into the busy Christmas period with Premier League champions Liverpool next up at Craven Cottage this Sunday afternoon. 2,000 Fulham supporters will be in the stadium on Sunday and I'm joined by three staunch Fulham fans this evening. Firstly, your Fulham focus stalwarts Jay Mack and Ben Robinson. Plus, we're delighted to be joined by Chair of the Fulham Supporters Trust, Tom Greatrex, who's peeled himself away from his appearance on Sky Sports News to join us for our show too. So let's get right on with it. Fulham. Firstly, Tom, welcome to the show. Great to have you on and thanks for taking the time to join us. No, thanks very much, Matt, for, for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah, brilliant stuff. Well, it's the first time fans have been allowed to attend a game at Craven Cottage since the 29th of February. It's such good news that 2,000 white supporters will be in the ground, although it's perhaps the toughest fixture of the season. Thomas, chair of the Supporters Trust, I believe you've had a meeting with the club earlier this week to discuss supporters returning to the cottage. What can you share with us about what was discussed? Yeah, we did. We have a meeting every month, but this month, obviously, it focused mostly on getting back into the ground, um, both in terms of the way the balloting was done and how that might be done in the future. But then also some of the things, you know, anyone who did get a ticket for Sunday will experience, which will be quite different from, I think, what we're used to. So um, the first thing to say is that we did uh, say to the club the way they've done the balloting, you know, doing three at once and you can't specify which one um, was not perhaps ideal. It's not that any other club has done that um, that we can find. Um, and particularly given that the first three fixtures, one's a weekend one, one's a midweek and one's a bank holiday, there's probably quite a few people who would normally have a season ticket and pass their tickets on if they couldn't go, who aren't going to be able to go to potentially all three of those, so who haven't entered the ballot. And they've taken that on board. I think they may well change the way they do it for future rounds of fixtures. But there will be, as you said, 2,000 uh, fans in the ground. The way that's split, it's 1,100 in the Hammersmith end, 900 in the Putney end. It doesn't include journalists and officials and all those sorts of things, they're going to be in the Johnny Haynes stand. They don't count for the 2,000. And within that 2,000, there's about 200 to 300 that are a combination of sponsors and those that bought seasonal hospitality, which means it's about 85, between 85 to 90% will be general admission, i.e. normal fans tickets, which is about the same as a proportion for pretty much every other Premier League club. So, uh, that's who will be able to go to those games. The number of applications they had mean that every fan who applied will be able to go to at least one of those three games. Um, so if you didn't get a ticket for Liverpool um, and you entered the ballot, you will almost certainly have one for Brighton. And if you don't have one for Brighton, you'll have one for Southampton. Um, and they may need to go back out on Southampton because of the number of applications. It's complicated because they're multiple, obviously, in some cases with groups and everything else. Um, but the number of applications uh, didn't um, the, the, uh, didn't meet the, the supply completely. So there'll be somewhere they have to manage the extra Southampton ones. But it does mean everyone who applied is able to go to a game, which I think is really, really good news because, you know, some suggestion about how fair it was. And I think that is as fair as you can as you can be in these circumstances. So how it will be different when you go on Sunday, if you're going on Sunday or one of the other games. First thing is. Uh, there aren't any physical tickets. It will be on your mobile phone or print at home. Um, you have to fill in a health questionnaire, which is all part of the track and trace things you have to do. You have to have photo ID when you turn up at the ground because I want to check that tickets haven't been passed on to other people. And uh, you will have to be there early. So depending on where you are, you'll either have to be there an hour and a half before kickoff or uh, an hour or so, yeah, an hour and a quarter before kickoff. So it depends really which blocks you're in, how that's exactly that'll work, and then you'll get that information. There won't be any catering. Um, the reason for that is because the catering in the concourse areas and the way they work out the number you can have in the ground at any one time is sort of worked on the basis that if everybody was in the concourse area at one time, so you could have catering open, you'd have less fans. So the club took the decision, which I think is the right one, to try to maximise the number of people who could go to the game. So you can bring your own refreshments, uh, apart from you can't bring any anything alcoholic and you need to bring anything you're bringing into the ground in a clear plastic bag. Reason for that is so they don't have to have close contact and search things. If the people at the, you know, the security people can see and stewards can see you've got a clear bag and what you've got in it, then that saves having to do that. 
Um, there will hopefully be programmes on sale for those that are interested in that at the grounds. The club shop will not be open. And I know this is the most pressing issue for everybody uh, to confirm that uh, there will be clappers, um, which I know people love and other people hate. <laughs> there will be clappers uh, at, the, at the game on, uh, on Sunday in the first few games. Um, and I think those are the main sort of main sort of things. I mean, I think the thing that we highlighted to the club was that these are really difficult circumstances to try to deal with. And everybody appreciates that. And there's bound to be some complications in it. But, you know, we try to keep uh, keep talking to them and try to help sort it out. Because what we want to do is facilitate as many Fulham fans who want to go to a game and who don't live in a tier three area and so can go to a game, get the chance to do so. Because it's good for it's good for us. We've missed it. We missed it massively. Uh, it's good for the club as well. And hopefully this is just the first step towards getting more people in and gradually over the course of the rest of the season into next season, getting back to a position where we can have meaningfully sized crowds again and we can all enjoy our football. That's brilliant, mate. Thanks ever so much for that. And we, we were just talking beforehand, weren't we? And, and straight away you're, you're saying, well, you know, there could be a, an hour and a half. Uh, you, you have to get in the ground an hour and a half before the game starts. And straight away I'm thinking, oh, God. I was, earlier I was really excited to have got a Liverpool ticket and now trying to work out the logistics of it and I'm already thinking about moaning. <laughs> it doesn't take long yeah. to get back in the swing of it, does it? <laughs> if I were you, I'd go onto Amazon and order your long johns because it's probably be cold <laughs> sitting there with the... Uh... Yeah, it's, gonna be, it's definitely going to be, isn't it? So you had the number there, Tom, for the number of people that applied, roughly. Yeah, well, it's complicated by the number of... it's. So it's more than 2,000 applications, but some of those applications are groups of five, you know, household groups of five and four and three and two. Um, so as far as we can work out, um, it's probably about the number that would equate to uh, about 5,000 tickets, okay. which... Um, is right. probably around about half the number who could enter the ballot because we've got a, roughly about 12,000 season ticket holders uh, from 1819 season. And there are areas, obviously, Kent, Slough, people who are in bits of Nottinghamshire in the Midlands and people who are around Bristol. We've got season ticket holders who live in all of those areas and they can't, they can't, they couldn't take part in the ballot because they're in t- tier three areas at the moment. So it's probably about half people did apply could and that means probably that over the course of two sort of sets of three fixtures pretty much every season to get older from last season will get the chance to go to a game which i think is is not too bad yes not but do you have any idea of the ages like did you get any of that information Did i'm thinking like old fans in particular with all this like e-tickets and stuff like that might be more difficult for them yeah and it is one of the things we we talked to the club about um you know, because there are some people who don't have a smartphone and might not have a printer at home. And, you know, the club will help out people who are in that position. But mostly, I mean, Brighton did it for their test event, for example. And uh, they found that there was a very few num- very few numbers who couldn't get a friend or someone else to help them do it. So yeah, I think that should be manageable. Um, I think inevitably there'll be some older fans who will be shielding, for example, who, uh, or who just for general health reasons might not fancy it. And that's fair enough. Make their own decision about whether they want to travel into London, depending on where they're coming from or across London. And uh, and, and some people I know have said to me that, that it doesn't sound like the experience they want to necessarily have. And they'll watch it on TV and wait until next season. Or others that will say, we'll wait until the weather's a bit better before we sit there in the cold. And that's fair enough as well. But you know, hopefully this enables as many fans as possible to get to a game. And that's what this is all about. And as I said, hopefully it is also something where we can build on the numbers and get more fans back over the course of the next few months. Tom, quick question from me, mate. Uh, just interested to know, do you know what the procedure might be uh, after the game is finished? Uh, do Would there be quite a, would there be an allotted time for when you can leave as well as entering for certain uh, for certain sections? Yeah, we, we don't know that for sure yet. Um, there was some discussion about that. Um, because for the same reason, you want everybody leaving at exactly the same time. Um, yeah. So it might be, but I don't think it's not going to be an hour and a half. You might be. Yeah, I was going to say, if it's five nil and you just went um, like, I yeah. prefer me with a clapper in your hands. So I want to go. Home. Exactly. Yeah. And and you know there are people we all know who it doesn't matter what the score is, how close the game is, how exciting it is, they will leave ten minutes early anyway. Yeah. And I think yeah. there'll be some amongst the two thousand that are there on Sunday. Right, J-Mac, Ben, uh, we've heard uh, the kind of logistics of how it's going to work on Sunday. How do you think 
it's going to work in terms of the fans. Do you, do you think it's going to be beneficial having 2,000 Fulham fans back in? How much of an impact can we have as supporters on this game? To be honest, I wasn't... When I heard about fans going back, you know, I was a bit worried because, you know, we we haven't got the biggest capacity in the world, but obviously it's still limited to the same amount for each 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 stadium. But when I heard the supporters at Spurs the other night and some other of the games on TV, I was really impressed with the amount of noise that was produced. So I feel like, especially just at being home fans, it'll, we can hopefully provide quite a cracking atmosphere. And if there's clappers as well, then absolutely, <laughs> to be honest. Classic, isn't it? We've been away for, what, 10 months and the first game back, we're talking about clappers again and yeah. we're going to be on the telly. We're, we're going to get loads of abuse, aren't we, for it on social media. But hey-ho, who cares? Football's back and, and we can go back to games, so that's great. Um. Ben, Liverpool are the current flavour of the month, having won the league last season, obviously. They've had their injury problems this season, chiefly with Virgil van Dijk's knee injury that he suffered when Jordan Pickford chopped him down in the Merseyside derby earlier this season. But the firepower they have up top in Salah, Mane, Firmino, and more recently, Diogo Jota, is formidable. Probably the best in world football at the moment, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if I'd agree on you for the best in the world, possibly. Um I've got to say, City, Juventus, Bayern, you know, teams like that. People like Ronaldo up top. Uh, look at Juventus, Ronaldo, Morata, Chiesa and Dybala. Their front four, that's a pretty formidable front four. But they're definitely up there. Uh, it's difficult to separate them. But I think one thing that sets them apart is the fact they haven't got a, an out-and-out striker. They've got that Firmino in that false nine. And he's not maybe one of the best strikers in the world when you compare him to the rest. And I think that's the, the way he plays in that system and the way they play together, they are. Yeah, the top class. It's going to be difficult to stop them. In my opinion, I mean, I can't imagine there's a forward three any better as a unit right now in the world, to be honest, just because like, my belief is they're the best, you know, high-pressing team in Europe at the moment. Uh, Firmino is the sort of always the classic unsung hero of just sort of knits everything together. His hold-up play is exceptional. You know, for Salah and Mane, incredible. But now with the addition of Diego Yota, it's just... It's the biggest belief just at the amount of firepower they've got. And I think Diego Yota was actually rested against Wolves. He came on as a substitute in about around the 70th minute. But with that sort of those four players, I can't really imagine a better. I, I think it's the best in the league easily at the moment for attacking. All right, well, I'm going to bring you back in here now, Tom. Um, this is a subject that does it does prove quite divisive. And we may have some Liverpool fans that are listening, which is why I've, I've put it in. But were you happy to see Liverpool finally win the league last season? I mean, I've, I've got to say, I'm quite the fan of Jurgen Klopp. You know, I was. I mean, I don't mind Liverpool. I know some people don't like them at all, but I, I don't mind them. And particularly after the, the season before when they ran Man City so close, I thought they sort of deserved it. And some of the football is is really exceptional. I mean, they are blessed with that talent. Um and you talked about the front four and the front three of the front four, and sometimes they play all four of them. And just watching that Wolves game, a bit of that Wolves game um, at the weekend, you know, and Salah sort of pouncing on any mistake, they're just phenomenal. So, yeah, I didn't mind it. It's quite good. It was a different team to win it for a change as well. You know, they haven't won it for a while. I, mean, I didn't mind that at all. I just hope, though, that they um, their sort of slightly patchy form they've had this season continues on Sunday. And how about you, Ben? How did you feel about Liverpool winning the title last season? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't happy for them per se, but um, it was good to see them finally get over the line, like Tom said. And finally, you know, the football they've been playing has been exceptional and they've been playing at the highest standard for a few seasons now. So they finally managed to knit it together. They didn't have that inevitable crumble that they had a couple of years in a row. Um, but on Jürgen Klopp, his charm's slightly wearing off now. He's a bit like Jose at United. He's become a bit of a broken record. Um, I was looking on Google earlier and I found a thread on Molyneux Mix, which is a Wolves website, obviously. And it's from 1920 and it's a thread of everything he's moaned about. So <laughs> he, he's moaned about uh, the wind against Everton in the derby, the wind against Southampton in the cup, um, against West Brom, he complained about a dry pitch. Then against Bury, he complained that it was too warm and too sunny. Um, he complained that the players had sore throats against Wolves. Um, <laughs> It's, it just gets, after a while it just becomes a bit amusing it's just like you know it gets a bit on your nerves um, yeah. but I absolutely love his football that he plays that you know, gag and pressing uh, that ultra high intensity it is really fun to watch and yeah I, I think it's like stops moaning a bit I'll like him a bit more 
he always moans. He, he tends to be moaning a lot when he loses or if it's a draw, for instance, you know, him having a go at that journalist after they drew 1-1 to Brighton. He's he's such a bad loser, Jurgen Klopp, and he'll, he'll admit that himself. He did when, uh, I think, Atletico Madrid beat them in a the Champions League game, saying they don't play proper football. Uh, but I, I find... I know what you mean. The charm is wearing off with the amount he's been whinging recently, but still he is, I think, one of the best managers we've ever had in the Premier League and he's he's just brilliant. And I still always think that when they won the European uh, the European Cup a couple of seasons ago and he's just counting on his hands how many beers he's drunk. So I, I always have fond memories of Jürgen Klopp. And in regards to Liverpool winning the title, um, it's always nice seeing a team win the title that have never won it before in Premier League standards anyway. Well, yeah. Unfortunately, I'm of an age when they used to win everything when I was growing up, so I, I can't, I can't, um, I can't be with you on that one. But yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's been a long time, that's for sure. And and they've got a good fan base, and their their supporters are, are, are fantastic on the whole. So, um, generally, can't can't you know wish them anything but the best. Back to Fulham, though. Um, I asked Stato and Will this in the Man City review on Sunday, um, and I wanted to get your three take on it. Um, will we see Mitro back in the side anytime soon? And what role could he play in this new counter-attacking style? Or do you think there's no role for him in, in this particular setup and he'll be using the games against the lower sides in the table? I'll come to you first, Tom. Well, I do hope we see him back soon. I mean, he's obviously, oh, I don't know, obviously, he looks like he's been a bit knackered lately. And when you think about it, you know, the sort of running to the start of this season from last season, the amount of international football we played and scoring regularly, um, maybe he's needed a bit of a break. Um, and I think back to the Liverpool game at Anfield about two years ago. Um, people might remember that one. It was in November, I think, early November, Sunday game. Um, and uh, we were playing pretty well against Liverpool that game. And I, did he, I think he thought he'd score, but it made me my days, wasn't it? Or, he so did, yeah. He, he, was, he, was, he was slightly offside. We were celebrating and then they broke away and scored themselves they whilst we were still away. celebrating. Yeah, um, so I'm just, I'm just mentioning that because, you know, he can play against good teams. I think sometimes I've, I've seen a few people saying the last last couple of weeks, oh, well, you know, he's he's not cut out playing the way that the Premier League is or against the, the better teams. I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, I think the tactics obviously work very well for, against uh, Leicester um, and maybe he's needed a bit of a break. And I, I, I don't know, I've got a sneaking feeling we might well see him back on Sunday. Mm. Yeah, I, I could see Mitro being back for this game. It's hard to say that Mitro doesn't suit counter-attacking football because he's Serbia's top scorer, I believe, and they play counter-attacking football. I mean, however, you know, they play it in a 4-2-3-1 on and off the ball. And, and I may be switching from five at the back. This this could be an issue for Mitro. I mean, Mitro thrives off crosses. We know this, and it's clear he knows he knows this because his physique has changed hugely since his days at Newcastle in his first season with us. He's made himself built as this unit to take the headers and not be compromised in the box by other defenders. I think personally that's limited him quite a lot um, and it's limited him to suit what actually we need. We need someone a bit more athletic, a little bit faster to run through the channel. And, you know, I just think he's made himself quite limited now. Crosses aren't occurring when you have Lutman on the left and, Ruben Loftus-Cheek or Bobby Reid on the right. The wing-backs are sure fast enough to travel back and forth, but they're basically travelling a much bigger distance than a 4-2-3-1 would in a Serbia team, for instance, Um, which is fine. I mean, I I like how we're playing a lot. I prefer it. I prefer counter-attacking. I always have done. I just think that Mitro, with the right support with Lukman up top, can definitely survive in a counter-attacking team for us. Yeah, I must admit as well, I was thinking similar to Tom, you know, um, has he picked up an injury um, in, that, in national games or is he just tired? Um, there was a bit of a rumour about a fallout um, with him and Scott Parker, but I think Tony Khan denied that on Twitter. So, you know, hopefully he's just, he's been a bit, played a few too many games in too short a time and he just needs to come back and just get his confidence up, score a couple of goals and get back into it. I think it's difficult against the very top teams because they've got big, strong centre-halves who are faster than him and they're you know, facing blokes at 6'6 six, six and faster than him, he's not going to have much of a chance of playing his sort of game. I was going to say, although Liverpool obviously have had a series of injuries in their defensive line, so maybe, you know, he might have more of a chance if he does play on Sunday than he might have been if we were playing Liverpool first game of the season. I keep having this conversation with my dad about Mitrovic and I, I won't repeat my um, my opinion on it because I gave that the other day, but my dad thinks he looks overweight. 
And I just think he just looks like a solid unit as he always has done. But do you think that's fair? I, I, I don't. I think it's unfair. But what, what do you guys think? Do you think he looks like he's I put some pounds on? I wouldn't say to his face that he's overweight. No, quite, no. <laughs> he's always looked like that to me, you know, pretty much. I mean, maybe he's bulked up a bit, but, you know, he's he's never been the quickest and he's never been mm. a player that looks the most mobile. But actually, when you, when you watch him and what he's able to do in the box and, you know, the way he can hold up the ball and also, you know, some of the positions he gets himself in, he can be deceptive, I think. He's a lot quicker than maybe you think. And um, I just think he's just got that sort of... Uh, he just looks like sometimes as though he's a bit of, you know, he's a bit lumbering, but he's not really. Um, and I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to... Neither would, I wouldn't want to call him overweight to his face, certainly. But I yeah. also don't think I fancy my chances going up against him in terms of fitness or, or speed, because I think he's a, he's a lot better than sometimes he looks. All right, well, let's come on to the starting lineup then. Do any of you think that there's going to be any changes to the starting lineup from the previous two games? It's the first time in a long time, I think, where we've we've kept the same lineup um, from one game to the next. Do, do you see any changes? Uh, I personally don't, unless Tete's fit. But even so, I don't think Ayn has done enough to warrant getting kicked out at the moment. I saw someone put on Twitter the other day, um, Ola Ayn has stats against uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold's. And he's every single defensive stat he's been better. And you might argue that's because he's uh we've been defending a bit more, but I like to think he's better. Um but yeah, if Tete's fit, maybe he'll come in for Ayuna, but I can't see it. Um I think that it's gonna be damage limitation from this formation, like the last two games, try and nick a result, try and limit, you know, confidence sort of knocks that we might get from this game. Don't think about trying to win it, think about just trying to not lose five, six nil, like um uh, other teams have done this season, like um uh, is it lost 5-0 to City Burnley wasn't it so don't have any games like that just try and keep it low as possible and get on to Brighton and get a result there I can't see Scotty changing the lineup at all but if if I was trying to be a bit adventurous and try something different I would definitely get Mitra involved and have him and Lookman up top in a 5-3-2 uh, with Bobby Reed probably playing just behind them and Gisa and Reed obviously behind him and if Congolo was fit I'd have him as one of the three centre-backs Congolo, Tosin with and Anderson and Robinson and Aina as the as the full, as the wing-backs but that, I, I can't imagine Scotty changing it I think what we might have just started to get a bit of groove with Cavalera in this sort of false nine position. He like he's quite good at stretching teams. He's, there's there's use in him yet, you know what I mean? So we've got to bear in mind that we've got this game on Sunday and a, and a game on Wednesday. So I think over the course of those two games, you'll see the squad used more. Um, and if you if you don't get many changes uh, on Sunday, then I think you might see a few coming in on on Wednesday to sort of manage manage the squad. And uh, in what, at least one of those games, I would not be surprised to see. Mitrovic start and I think potentially Joe Bryan so when Joe Bryan's playing with Mitrovic and the amount that he can supply um, I think I think that's probably what will happen so we may start with the same team but uh, I'm not not convinced we'll end with the same team and that'll carry through into the next fixture after that as well. That's a good point actually this is the first point in this season where we've had a Premier League game midweek I think isn't it we've had a couple of cup games which was short-lived after we got knocked out by Brentford earlier in the season um, but this is the first like two back-to-back within the space of uh, a few few days where we're probably going to need to see the squad so that's that's a really good point all right well we'll have some more of this in a short while but first of all let's go to a chat that I had recently with Baldo about former Fulham captain and legend Danny Murphy Fulham Right, it's the next in the series of our In Focus chats this week. It's the turn of ex-Fulham captain and Liverpool legend Danny Murphy. I've got Baldo with me. How are you doing, mate? Not too bad, yourself? Yeah, very well. Let's get right into this one then. So, Danny Murphy signed for Fulham in the summer of 2007 from Spurs and scored on his debut in the 3 all draw at home with Man City. How did you feel when we signed Murphy? As the club were in a period of transition under Laurie Sanchez at the time and, and his reign didn't last very long, did it? No, it didn't. And just on, on Murphy, I, it was a bit of a meh signing for me because he'd had those couple of years with, uh, I think it was Charlton, then Spurs. So I thought, you know, all oh, this this great Liverpool player that I, you know, scoring many goals against Man United and playing in the Champions League. And then for him to basically come down, I thought, oh, he's on the bit of the downswing of his career. So the signing as a whole didn't really 
it was a bit of a meh. All the signings we made that summer, the likes of, you know, I was excited by David Healy. I was excited by Aaron Hughes. I was excited by Paul Konchesky. Danny Murphy just sort of went under the radar a bit. And obviously his impact didn't have, you know, he had a bit of an impact to start off with, as you said, scoring against Man City in the draw, but obviously not enough to keep Laurie Sanchez in a job. And thankfully, thankfully it worked out all in the end. I think we've been linked with Danny Murphy in the previous January transfer window. So maybe it was something that Chris Coleman was trying to get done. But then we ended up signing him like, I don't know, 48 hours, right right at the end of the transfer deadline day. And he was just about signed in time to make his debut in that next game in which he scored. So you're right, I suppose. He'd, 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 he'd done really well at Charlton after Liverpool. And that obviously made Tottenham sit up and take notice. But just at Tottenham, he he, he wasn't great, was he? No, he wasn't. And I know, I don't know if it was maybe a system thing because, and I know we're going to talk about this later. I know that he didn't get on well with Martin Yoles. So, because he was in charge of Spurs when uh, he, he was the one who sold Murphy in the place. So maybe it was just a, you know, a, a system thing as much as anything. Well, once Sanchez had been removed, in came Roy Hodgson and Danny became a pivotal player for us, particularly that season in staying up. Or should I say, firstly, that season in staying up. He eventually scored after missing the penalty against Man City, then played a superb through ball to Jamansi Kamara to set up the dramatic winner at the Etihad. Then of all people, he headed home the winner at Portsmouth. What a season and what a way to write yourself into the Fulham record books. Yeah, absolutely. And if you hear the way he talks about that season is just fantastic. And if you have a chance, go back and listen to the or watch the uh, Brian McBride the evening with thing because he talks about how important Danny Murphy was in 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 you know in playing that role because as much you know, as much as part on the pitch but the leadership that he brought in for obviously the, those big game experience of playing with Liverpool in the Champions League and you know various cup finals everything so he, he was fantastic and then as you say of all people you know I did somewhat have a bit of an an idea because he was our penalty taker in the talking about penalties in this time of Fulham season, because um, he was our penalty taker um, during that time. So I did have this idea and this dream that he was going to, it was going to be this, you know, fantastic fairy tale 95th minute winner that he would get and score a penalty afterwards. But for him to get the header in the way he did was, you know, equally as good. And again, the way he talks about the fact that he's not the greatest header of the ball and he had to go to McBride to ask for tips and all that stuff during the season. It's it's a great story, not just the moment itself, but everything that led up to it. Danny Murphy also says that he wasn't even supposed to be in the penalty area, was he? For uh, I don't know what he was doing there, but he just popped up and just got his head on the end of it. But uh, he, I don't know who who else was supposed to be there, but he was just in the right place at the right time, even though he wasn't meant to be. Exactly. I have no idea who would who was... You know, if he wasn't there, I have no idea who was like tracking the ball behind him. If maybe Diamante Camera or something was there to stick it in with his left foot or something. But yeah, it all worked out perfectly. So it's a happy coincidence. I think it was just a case of it's now or never. Let's flood the penalty area and just try and get somebody on the end of the ball. So yeah, that it, it was a hell of a day that and a, a hell of a result and one that I couldn't have foreseen a few months before. That's for sure. Um, the following season, we qualified for the Europa League and Danny Murphy continued his career-long habit of scoring against Manchester United, as you mentioned earlier. It was a penalty that day in the 2-0 win at the Cottage. Danny Murphy was just a magnificent penalty taker, wasn't he? It felt like it was a certain goal when he stepped up most of the time. Yeah, it was. You had a lot of, you had a lot of faith and something I haven't really had you know, since Heider Helgerson left. Since it was basically after Heider Helgerson, we didn't really have that confident of a penalty taker because I don't know how many we got in the, you know, six, seven season, but there wasn't all that much. And then the early part of 2007-8, we didn't get many, you never felt confident. But Danny Murphy was fantastic all the way throughout. And you could just tell if anyone watched the match of the day analysis of our uh, loss to Everton a couple of weeks ago, you you know that he knows his stuff when it comes to penalties. So obviously it's something he's obviously practiced. I don't know if he was penalty taker at Liverpool, but it's obviously something that he's experienced and knows very well. So it's obviously something he brought into his game. So that's probably why he was so successful, the amount of research and analytical you know stuff that he did leading up to it. 
I think he was the penalty taker at Liverpool for a period of time. I don't know whether Gerrard was first choice, but if he wasn't on the pitch, then Murphy would take them. But I I know that Murphy scored a, a couple of winning penalties at Old Trafford. And just to have that kind of calm head in such a, um, a pressure situation. And you're right, I watched that analysis he did on Match of the Day after Cavalero missed the penalty against Everton. And, and he was talking about the angle that he went up to the ball and said that he was far too wide and how he should have been lining himself up with, with the post to give himself, you know, the, the best opportunity with his standing foot. And I also remember years ago as well, he always used to say, don't change your mind when um, when you step up to take a penalty. Just And the only time he ever did change his mind was that Man City one, which he missed. Yeah, I was going to say, and things like the firmness of the pitch playing a part in it, you don't yeah. really, you don't really think about that as a fan. But when it's brought to your attention by someone like him, then yeah, you got to think, yeah, he obviously knows his stuff. He, yeah, as you say, took penalties for Liverpool. I've no idea if he did for Charlton Spurs, but the the amount of stuff that he's done prepared and for it, that's probably why he was so good. Well, then of course the Europa League run itself where he was simply magnificent all the way through, with the exception of his misdemeanour at Shakhtar Donetsk when he was sent off in the last minute for kicking out at a player right by the corner flag. A real out-of-character moment, which meant that he ended up missing the Juventus games. Just wonder what was going through his head at that time. Um, I, I honestly couldn't tell you, because that Shakhtar Donetsk away game, I can't remember a lot of because it was... I, I don't think I actually managed to watch it because it was on some weird channel at the time or some channel that I didn't have but I managed to get like highlights of it but yeah you you do just wonder whether or not maybe he was because I think we were 3-1 up in the tie at that point maybe he was looking to get the ball back to maybe get that that goal to seal it or something with away goals playing a factor in it all that sort of stuff just hang I I honestly don't know what what was but it all it all worked out in the end and I don't know whether or not Chris Baird and Jonathan Greening would have gone down in full folklore in the way that they have if if they didn't get their chances against Juventus, you know, in Danny Murphy's absence. That's true. We might have beaten Juventus by even more. It might have been, <laughs> might have been, might have been comfortable. I think. By the way, I think it was three two against Shakhtar Donetsk, wasn't it? Was it was two one. Yeah, two one after the first leg, and then it was one all in the second leg. So we didn't have we didn't have two goals to play with. That's for sure. It was, was one much all, tighter. I thought, I thought we, Oh, I thought we only won one nil. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> no, no, it was much, it was much tighter. So, um, uh, so yeah, who, who knows what was going through his head? Anyway, it was bizarre. So, but go, carrying on on the Europa theme, days after we made it out of the group by winning in Basel, you know, you, you'd think that that would have taken a lot out of the team because that was a, a win or bust game. We, we had to win that, or we didn't make it out of the group. But then we had Manchester United at home on the Saturday, and he, of course, scored against them again. And I think he. Uh, I think he pointed over to the Manchester United fans as he scored as well, which which made it even more the sweeter. But three 0 against against Manchester United, I think they were struggling with their defence at that time. But even still, to to come come out and win three 0 after winning away at Basel was was pretty special. Absolutely, you say it, it should have taken a lot out of the team. It took a lot a lot a lot out of you from the stories we've told. The fact that you, um, what, what's the story? You got stuck. You, you tell you tell the story. It's a brilliant one. Uh, well, I don't know if it's a brilliant one, but it's a story. So yeah, I um, I I, I was just having a, a mini break in in Basel, so uh, watched the game on the Wednesday, and was supposed to fly back on the Friday night, and um, and because of the weather, all the flights were cancelled out of Basel. So um, we obviously had the Manchester United game on the Saturday at three o'clock. And I tried to get a flight back to England on Saturday morning, but the only flight I could get was with um, Swiss Airline that, that flew me back to Manchester. And the the game was in, well, at the cottage. So I got back to got back to Manchester about lunchtime and then had to get the train back and just had no chance of making it. And I hadn't had any sleep anyway, so I just had to go home and go straight to bed and, and woke up to, to find out that we'd beaten them 3-0, so... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but, but just but just on that game, it was a brilliant experience. You know, with some context, the fact that you know Man United were, I, I think, was some like Paul Scholes, Darren Fletcher, and Michael Carrick were their back three at the time because they mm. were riddled with centre back problems. But again, the fact that you know him as captain probably would have, you know, probably would have said, you know, as this is probably a good a chance as any. I know we beat Man United earlier, no, or earlier that year, the last season, but. Let's not take this easy or anything. Let's actually go out and you know keep them keep the momentum going. And the fact that we managed to roll over them, 
you know, three nil, not exactly, not exactly like a one nil scraped. We absolutely demolished them that day. So I think again, part of that leadership, and he knows how to how to play against Manchester United. I think that would have been that was a fantastic show of leadership from him. Yeah, he's a real bogey player against Manchester United as well. So it's great for us. For me, Danny was one of the best captains the club's had. Probably even the best Premier League captain. Well, can you think of anybody better in the Premier League era? Um, everyone who knows me will know that will know that I will stick up for Brian McBride, but he didn't really have much of a chance because he only had like three months or so as official captain. So I think by default, if you look at you know the other options, you know Coleman, Melville, Michael Brown, Boamorte, Hanglin, they're all decent Coleman. players, but I don't, Coleman, I don't think Col- Coleman wasn't. Col- Coleman wasn't the Premier League captain. He broke his leg when we were in the Championship or Division One. He I played say that, in the Premier I- League for us. So I get I get the timings I get the timings get that confused, um, but yeah, but you look at the captains that we had; they're all decent players, they're all fine players. But when you look at what the captains have, you know, achieved on the pitch uh, and all that sort of stuff, and the time and the time span they spent with us, Danny Murphy far and away was the best captain we had in the Premier League year. I don't I don't think there's any real argument there. Yeah, the, the thing with Danny Murphy as well is you have to factor in the achievements. He was he was the captain for our three highest ever finishes. Um, seventh under Roy Hodgson, eighth under Mark Hughes, ninth under Martin Yo. Um, and Martin Yo's ninth is better than Chris Coleman's as manager on goal difference. Um, and we've only ever had five top 10 finishes in our history with Murphy as captain for, for three of them. You know, that includes the old first division when, you know, the likes of Johnny Haynes played for us as well. So it's, it's a hell of an achievement, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you put it in that context, you know, that I literally just found that out right now. Yeah. Five, five top 10 finishes in our history. He's been there for 60% of them. I think that just goes to show what sort of a leader he was. And again, the fact that he's managed to do it, you know, across across multiple managers, you can't put it down to as much as we love Roy Hodgson. It wasn't all just him. It wasn't all Martin Yol. It wasn't all Mark Hughes sort of thing. The fact that he's the one constant in that, along with a couple of players, but that position of captain as well just adds a little bit more weight to it. Yeah, I agree. So I'm going to come on and ask you about your favourite Danny Murphy moment in a minute. And I don't think I have... One particular favourite moment, aside from that Portsmouth goal on on the last day of the season to keep us up, you know, the great escape. But for me, there was this kind of move that he always always used to do um, when the ball was kind of played to him in midfield and he had a player right behind him. Instead of taking a touch, he just let the ball do the work and go past him. And he kind of dropped his shoulder and then went the other way and always just left the player for dead. And, you know, he was he was well into his 30s and he he looked, you know... He was mixing it up with the best players in the world still still at that age. And and that the way that he used to just buy himself some extra time and space by not touching the ball and just letting it go past him. I always used to admire that. And I've not seen anybody do it since. What's what's your favourite Danny Murphy moment? Um, I've got two. I've got an on-the-pitch one and off-the-pitch one. The on-the-pitch one, and it again talks you know, about his experience and his leadership sort of thing. It's a bit of a weird one, but in the 08-09 season, around December time, we played Manchester City at home. And I remember, because I remember watching at the time, he won the uh, the coin the coin toss at the start of the game and he switched ends. And I remember it distinctly because he got it so that the sun was directly in Joe Hart's eyes. And Joe Hart was then affected by, I think it was Jimmy Bullard, scoring, scoring the goal. So I just remember, and then by the time the second half had kicked off, the sun was down. It was, you know, back to a level playing field. And I just remember that being just a little, very smart thinker sort of thing. So that just shows, that just shows that again, back to the penalty thing. He's a thinker. He knows, he knows all the the small ways to get advantages sort of thing. And off the pitch, um, I was working, um, doing my Daniels. I was working at uh, Gatwick Airport in the car parking thing. And this was about three o'clock in the morning. And he happened to come in just to ask a question about something, something else with the airport. And I asked him if I could just get a picture with him. And the fact that this was three o'clock in the morning, he'd probably just come off a flight. He was confused about something like where the car park was to find his car, probably a little bit angry. But the fact that he still took the time to say, yeah, sure, I'll have a picture with you after I'd said, you know, I'm a Fulham fan. Thanks for everything sort of thing. Just goes to show what a nice guy, because he doesn't, he comes across as a bit of a grump on match of the day. A smart guy, but a grump. But the fact that he was willing to take, 
you know, two minutes out of his you know, busy, busy morning trying to get off a flight just shows what a fine guy he was. You talk about him on Match of the Day. The only thing, the only gripe I've got with Danny Murphy is that if you didn't know that he'd played for Fulham, he never really talks about us as if he played for us. He never really has much affection for us when he's talking about us. Maybe that's just his personality and, you know, he's he's towing the BBC line of being, you know, impartial. But I, I just feel like he could be a bit more, he, he could talk about Fulham a bit more warmly when he talks about Fulham. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I get that. I don't know if maybe he's sort of, because when because when he left at the end of 2011-12, I think it was, as I said, under Martin Yell, it wasn't the most amicable of relation of you know departures. We say you know, Martin Yell has played a part has played a part in this sort of thing. So I don't know if maybe that's why. And then you see that the downward spiral that we've gone on in a sort of way. You know, would that have happened if he was still here? Sort of thing. I do. I do think that plays a part in it. You know, just just the way he left and the fact that if he hadn't have gone, maybe we'd have been in a little bit safer position. You know, during the. Uh, Shahid Khan takeover and the you know Mullenstein era and all that sort of thing. So I think I personally think that plays a part in just the way that he was treated. Because I think we've had this discussion with Danny. When it comes to his achievements, you know, being part of you know a member of a, a great Liverpool team that won the treble or scoring the winning goal to keep a team up, taking them to the highest ever finish, then taking little old Fulham to a Europa League final. Is arguably, you know, the biggest achievement of his career. So the fact that he doesn't speak, you know, as you say, well highly of us, does sort of raise questions on that on that front. It's interesting though, because I think he was very happy when he was at Fulham, because I always remember seeing his wife tweet about Fulham and she was always engaging with the fans on social media and, you know, talked about how how happy that they that they were and um how happy he was. So it's it's a shame um, in in a lot of ways. But that being said, he's been back to collect this forever Fulham award last season, and got a great reception, and and you know gave gave the fans um, a lot of respect as well. So you know maybe maybe just looking too much into it, and it's only a small gripe anyway because it doesn't really matter. You know his performances on the pitch and, and what he did for the club were the most important things. Um, as you said, in June two thousand and twelve, after five superb years at the club. Danny signed for Steve Keane's newly relegated Blackburn Rovers in the Championship. Probably the right time for him to make the move, maybe at the age of 35, but I was very sad to see him go and had hoped he'd be back one day in some sort of capacity. You talked then about, you know, whether or not he could still have done a job for us, but he was 35, you know, there were were, um, younger, more agile players probably in the squad around that time, you know, Moussa Dembele for one. Yeah, I, I wasn't... You know, I was sad to see him go, but I could understand, as you said, 35. And even, you know, in stages during that season, I think he started being subbed off a couple more times. And you could just tell that the age was was getting to him. So in in that time, it, it was the it was the right decision to to move him on, even if, you know, as I've so as I've hinted at, it may not have been the most amicable you know, on both sides, but from a business decision, from a footballing decision, it was probably the right move. Well, he stated that he was keen to return as manager following the sacking of Felix McGat in 2014, but ultimately ended up on that bizarre five-man panel who were charged with selecting the next manager. The five-man panel, of course, which comprised of himself, Brian McBride, Niall Quinn, David Daly and Hugh Jennings. Um, and they ended up concluding to give the job to Kit Simons, who was already the caretaker manager anyway. So it just seemed a bit of a waste of time. But Danny Murphy's now taken the path of BBC Pundit, as we've mentioned, um, it's a secure income, I suppose, as opposed to the uncertainty of football management. But do you think he would have made a good manager for somebody? And do you think he might still do? I don't... I'll, I'll ask first. I think he would have made a good manager. As I've said, I think the way he thinks about the game would lend would lend itself to being a, de- a decent manager for someone. I don't think, given you know what was going on at Fulham at the time, with because you know, the Felix McGath sacking was about five games after the start of the championship season, we'd just gone through a whole host of changes. I wouldn't have wanted a new manager at that stage. At least Kit Simons had a couple of games with the under-21s who were being brought up, so you could understand that. But I wouldn't have wanted him to be full of manager at that point. Could he be a good manager in the future? He probably could, but as you said, I 
the role of pundit is a lot more cushy um, than than being a football manager. So I think that ship has probably has probably sailed. But I w- I would love to I would love to see him have a go if has, if he has to start lower down the leagues, then so be it. But I I think there's something there. It's just a case of whether or not he chooses to do it. Oh, I just I can't imagine he's going to start lower down the leagues now. He's on on match of the day. It just it would seem like quite a um quite a u-turn at this stage wouldn't it but anyway you never know never say never and who knows who knows what's what's in his heart's desire so we will have to wait and see he scored 17 goals in 169 premier league appearances for fulham over his five years at the club he was a major part in our highest ever finish as a club and captain the side to a major european final we've had worse players haven't we rate his fulham career out of 10 mate I don't think he ever put a foot wrong. Yeah, you know, I can't. You know, the Shakhtar Donetsk sending off, but in the grand scheme of things, is a is a minor thing. You, know, you you don't remember him having a bad game or going through a bad spell. And as you said, those five years, three of them were fantastic. So would it be? I don't think it's over exact to give him like a nine. I don't think even even a ten. I don't think I don't think it would be too over the top because. You can't you can't really say a bad a bad word against him. You can't get any better than captain in the club to our three highest ever finishes and a European Cup final. It's got to be a ten, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, ten. I'll I'll gladly give a ten. I, I've it's got to be a no ten. He was just he was a classy midfielder. He brought real star quality to the side. He was a calm head um, on, on the whole, a great captain, a great leader, and just a great footballer. You know, look at that pass he put through to, to Kamara for that uh, for the uh, for the winner, sorry, against Man City, and his calm head in pressure situations from penalties. Just everything about him. He was just a brilliant player. He seemed like he lived quite a, a normal life off the pitch, family man, and just brought that, like I said, that star quality to the lineup. So definitely a ten for me as well. Yeah, absolutely. I I've no idea if you if this has to be put, you know, alongside the context of other players, but as a whole, th- yeah, ten. I've got no qualms. Well, he, even alongside other players, I mean, one of the best, one of the best midfielders we've ever had. Yeah, I know, but it's we've had this discussion. I think Danny's had this discussion before. If we ha- if we give him a ten, then does that like devalue someone that we've given a nine sort of thing? That's what that's what I'm just trying to wrap my head around, but. Yeah, solely on its own, then it's a 10. Yeah, nice one. All right, mate, thanks ever so much for that. Let's pass it back to the main show. Fulham. Right, well, let's go over to J-Mac, who's got Stato stats. Hello. Yeah, so just going, starting off with our record against Liverpool, uh, Fulham have won 12, we've drawn 16, and Liverpool have won 41, so the record's not great. Um we have lost our last six games against them, conceding 18 and scoring just four. We did, however, manage to do the league double against them in the 2011-2012 season. 1-0 uh, win both away and home. And that was a, just so you know, that was a Martin Skirtle own goal at Anfield that gave us the win and a Clint Dempsey 85-minute winner at the Cottage. We know about their season last season. It was absolutely fantastic. But this season, look, well, since the injury of uh, Virgil van Dijk, they've only conceded six goals with that central partnership they've now got. Uh, so they're not looking actually as bad as we thought we would, they would with the injury of Virgil van Dijk. Uh, they've picked up a lot of serious injuries other than that as well. Joe Gomez picking up lengthy injuries with run out. But we're looking that we will see Trent Alexander-Arnold back for this game with Keita maybe. Um, another part of their season, which is really notable, is their biggest result, which was a 7-2 defeat to Aston Villa, severely denting their goal difference and a number of goals conceded this season. I think that that result is clearly the reason why they're not top and Spurs are at the moment with their goal difference. And they have quali- qualified top of their Champions League group with one game to spare. There's a high chance they'll be resting players in preparation uh, for this match against us. So I don't know what to expect potentially. I think we'll definitely see... A very similar lineup to against Wolves. I think we'll have Firmino, we'll have Mane, and we'll have Salah. I can't see them playing Jota straight away, but just to give you some stats about Mohamed Salah really quickly this season, he's currently the top scorer with nine goals and has two assists. He averages 3.9 shots per game, and expected goal figure at that is a staggering 6.6. Sadio Mane is expected his goals is 
5.2 per game, averages at 3.2 shots per game. He's currently on four goals and one assist. And Roberto Firmino, you've got two goals and two assists for this season. So it's it's a deadly, deadly trio, as we all know. I, I just can think he, with this game, go on. I was just going to say, can any of them play right wing back like Bobby Reid can, though? No, exactly. I don't yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't so who are they? I don't really... Well, I don't know. I, I, I've got Trent Alexander-Arndel has been a bit sort of on the sidelines of injury, but he could be back this game. I can also, I wouldn't be surprised if someone like Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain scored against us in this game because he's suddenly coming back into the fold and I can imagine him sort of being subbed on scoring against us. But then again, I predicted Foden would do that for City and he didn't. So <laughs> who knows? Well, aren't you just a little ray of sunshine? Well, let's come on to the score predictions yeah. then. Let's come on to the score predictions. Uh, ben, what are you thinking? Are we going to win this one? I don't think we're going to win it. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go with shock result, one all, Bobby Reed to score, 85th minute equaliser. Oh, nice. like your style. Tom, what are you thinking? I would love that to be the case. Um, I'm thinking, even though they've got a European game before and even though they're going to be looking at their Tottenham game the following Wednesday I just think that depth of that squad even with the injuries is is just it's frightening what they've got up front and having watched a bit of that Wolves game so unfortunately I don't think we're going to win I don't think we're going to draw I think we'll lose I hope we score I'm going to go for 3-1 to Liverpool yeah, I'm with you. I think it'll be 3-1 as well. I, I can't see anything but a defeat. But 3-1's not too bad against against the current champions. I'll take that. And then the season starts again next week. J-Mac, how about you, mate? Uh, I'm going to go with 2-1, just to be a bit more optimistic like I was in the preview against City. 2-1 um, loss. And I'm hoping that we can just take a leaf out of Raheem Sterling's book and maybe just dive and, and get a penalty. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? It was a dive, wasn't it? Such a never, dive. Never a penalty. No one's talking about it either. Everyone's just saying, oh, yeah, there's a bit of contact there. I couldn't see any at all. Full of a shit in I defense. Raheem Sterling's really good. It must must have been a penalty. Rubbish. <laughs> Sorry, Tom, go on, mate. Did you hear his scream? You know, scream? <laughs> yeah, because there's no obviously no crowd and the sound picking up is sort of... It wasn't just an exaggerated fall and dive, but his exaggerated scream as he sort of went down. I think it's comical. So, um, yeah, although yeah, if we manage to do it, and I wouldn't be that confident with us with penalties this season so far. So, no, I'd rather just just score a normal goal and not have to go through the the stress of it all. It's too much. It's too much getting a penalty these days. All right, let's leave it there then, lads. Tom, thanks very much once again for taking the time to join us this week, mate. Come on again. Cheers. Thanks very much. Nice one. J-Mac and Ben, thanks as always too. We'll be back first thing on Monday morning UK time for a blow-by-blow account. I've got a ticket, so I'll race back and I'll be joined by Baldo and Mark Wyatt. So I'll look forward to speaking to you then. Enjoy the rest of your week and speak soon. Cheers. Cheers.